The sound you're hearing is the engines of the Hindenburg, that massive airship that was designed and launched by Ferdinand von Zeppelin in the early 1930s. Before its demise in 1937, when it caught fire and burned in Lakehurst, New Jersey, it was considered a technological miracle. In many ways, it still is. A couple of weeks ago, I was looking through some photographs trying to find a picture of L.A. for a magazine article that I'm working on. Along the way, I came across some pictures I took of the Goodyear blimp, anchored in Carson, California, right next to the freeway. I was in a taxi heading to Long Beach to run a week-long leadership program, and I happened to look out the window at just the right moment. And there it was, tied to a mast in a field with a low fence around it. So I asked my taxi driver to take the next exit and head down there before we went to the hotel. Well, we parked, and I walked over to the fence. The first thing that struck me was how big it is. It's actually kind of scary to stand next to, sort of like a whale swinging back and forth from its tether point. The airship is about 250 feet long, so not quite the length of a football field. And according to a very friendly ground crew guy who took the time to come over and chat with me and my taxi driver, it can carry as many as 15 passengers. It carries enough fuel to stay aloft for about 24 hours. In fact, one of the statistics that I ran across while researching this story is that the Goodyear blimp uses less fuel in two weeks of flying than a 747 uses to taxi from the boarding gate to the head of the runway. And by the way, here are a couple of other kind of cool factoids that I learned by reading a little book called The Blimp Book. The original Goodyear blimp's balloon had no internal structure, which made it different from the Zeppelins that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, because the Zeppelins had an internal frame, as do the newer Goodyear blimps, which technically means that they're not blimps. They're called semi-rigid airships. But it had three compartments inside, one in the front, one in the back, and a big one in the middle. The middle compartment was filled with 200,000 cubic feet of lighter-than-air helium. That's, of course, what makes it go up. The newer airships have a third again that much. The front and rear compartments were called ballonets, and they were filled with regular air. When the pilot wanted the blimp to ascend, he or she deflated the front ballonet, allowing the air to escape, and the center helium compartment to expand into the nose, making the front of the blimp lighter than the back, so the nose rose. To achieve level flight, the pilot simply refilled the front ballonet with air, squashing the helium back into place and leveling the airship. To descend, the pilot did the opposite, deflating the rear ballonet to allow the helium to expand backwards, making the rear end rise, effectively pointing the nose down. The engines then drove the blimp into a slow-motion descent to its mooring tower, where the ground crew grabbed it and tethered it to the blimp equivalent of a trailer hitch, a big ball mounted on the tethering tower so that the blimp can move around in the wind. The newer blimps are similar, other than the fact that, as I said, they have an internal frame. But here's the factoid that I like best. When the airship's deflated, meaning no helium on board, the whole thing weighs around 20,000 pounds. That's 10 tons. But once it's full of helium, it only weighs around 100 pounds sitting on the ground. So when it comes time for launch, the ground crew surrounds the gondola where the pilot sits. They grab the handrail that encircles the gondola. And once they get a thumbs up from the pilot, they just toss the blimp into the air. The pilot hits the power and the blimp flies away at around 35 miles an hour 
although the original blimps could crank it up to around 50, while the new airships can hit a little bit over 70. I mean, how is it possible to not love these things? Anyway, let's get back to the original Zeppelins that I want to talk about. Those pictures I ran across got me thinking. What must it have been like to fly in these big dirigibles of the 1930s, those gigantic hydrogen-filled airships that were sometimes called flying ocean liners? People took long trips on those things, and not a few people. Travel by Zeppelin was a real thing back then. In fact, by the time the Hindenburg met its fiery end in New Jersey, we'll have more on that later, more than 3,500 people had made commercial flights aboard the Hindenburg or its sister ship, the Graf Zeppelin. In fact, when the Hindenburg burned, it was in its second season of transatlantic flight. As I researched this story, I ran across a couple of books that, once I started reading them, I couldn't stop. The first was John Gahagan's When Giants Ruled the Sky, his book about the days when the great inflatable airships were the dominant form of aviation. The other was Alexander Rose's Empires of the Sky, Zeppelins, Airplanes, and Two Men's Epic Duel to Rule the World, the story of the battle for commercial dominance of air travel between Hugo Eckner, who was Count von Zeppelin's protege, and Juan Tripp, the leader of Pan American Airways. Here's John Gahagan. The Germans were um, the pat masters at building Zeppelin. The first commercial airline was a German airship that was traveling during the 19-teens in Germany. They carried tens of thousands of paying passengers, millions of miles for more than 20 years without a single fatality. You know, most people, all they know is the Hindenburg. But the truth of the matter is until the Hindenburg, the German air, commercial airship basically had the best safety record of any form of transportation, which, again, is, you know, kind of a remarkable story. Even when the Hindenburg did crash in May of 37, most people don't realize that two thirds of the passengers and crew walked away from that accident. The original Goodyear blimp is a beast at 192 feet. I say original because the new generation of blimps that the company flies are, as I said earlier, closer to 250 feet long. Compared, though, to the Hindenburg, it's tiny. The Hindenburg was 804 feet long, which is almost four times the length of the Goodyear blimp and three and a half times longer than a Boeing 747, or, if you prefer, the length of two and a half American football fields. It crossed the ocean in three days, flying at around 80 miles an hour, and as we'll discuss later in the program, for the most part, it flew pretty low. You could see amazing sights on a Zeppelin because they traveled much more slowly than an airplane. That's Alexander Rose. A real fast Zeppelin with the wind behind it, you know, it could do about you know, 75, 85 miles an hour, you know, which is still pretty fast if you're in this thing that's the, half the size of the Empire State Building. But it was quiet. And again, as I said, silent and vibrationless and so on. Like a little trick they would do is they would they would find a, a, a thunder thundercloud or a rain, heavy rain cloud in the middle of the Atlantic. And they would kind of skirt against it to pick up water for ballast. It would roll down the, the side of the dirigible uh, skin. Uh, and you could just sit there and just watch kind of just this, this beautiful sort of maneuver. These original commercial airships had tremendous range. In the summer of 1929, the Graf Zeppelin flew around the world, not in 80 days, but in 21, piloted by Hugo Eckner himself. And the Graf Zeppelin routinely flew passengers back and forth between Germany and Brazil, a 68-hour journey, and of course between Germany 
and the United States. They were also able to lift a lot of cargo that included mail, passenger baggage, cargo, and passenger cars. This is because of the lighter-than-air hydrogen that they were filled with. Hydrogen, of course, is terrifyingly flammable. So why didn't they use helium, which, as a noble gas, won't burn? The answer? Politics. The only source of readily available helium at the time was the United States, and the U.S. refused to sell helium to Germany at the time, which forced the Zeppelin company to use hydrogen instead. It wasn't ideal, but it was all they had. It was that period between, say, 1914 and 1937 when the Hindenburg crashed that the giant airships, Zeppelins, really came into their own. And in 1929, when the Graf Zeppelin began flying commercially between Germany, Rio de Janeiro, and later Lakehurst, New Jersey, it was seen as the Concorde of its day. Now, the Hindenburg wasn't just a big blimp-shaped gas bag. As I said earlier, these things had internal frames of aluminum alloy rings and struts, sort of an exoskeleton that was coated in bright blue protective paint. Its skin, which covered the frame, was cotton cloth soaked in gelatin and then coated with powdered aluminum to reflect heat. Her thrust came from four 16-cylinder Daimler-Benz diesels, each one attended around the clock by its own crew. For the Zeppelin guys, they weren't competing against airplanes. They were competing against first-class cruise liners. That's the, the, the big change, because there was no airplane that had that kind of range. It was just impossible. I mean, Lindbergh himself was a kind of a one-off outlier. And I think I, I think in the book I mentioned that he, he was so concerned about weight, cutting out weight, that he would cut off like the parts of a map, paper map that he wouldn't need in order to save that tenth of a gram or something. The first commercial dirigible service flew from Friedrichshafen, Germany, to Lakehurst, New Jersey in 1928. And by the way, the word dirigible comes from the French word dirigeable, which means steerable. In French, Zeppelins were called ballons dirigeables, which means steerable balloons. The Graf Zeppelin left Germany on its maiden voyage on October 11th and arrived in New Jersey four days later. Now, one really interesting point of history here is that New York City's Empire State Building was completed in 1931. And that big spire that sits on top of the building is actually a dirigible mast because the architects were convinced that dirigibles would be coming over from Europe in huge numbers and, of course, would need a place in the city to moor. Needless to say, that never happened. In August 1936, the Hindenburg, which was the twin, although slightly bigger, of the Graf Zeppelin, flew from New Jersey to Frankfurt, Germany in 43 hours, but that wasn't typical. The trip usually took three or four days. However, it was a lot faster than ocean liners, which typically took anywhere from five to ten days to make the crossing, depending on the weather. But, you know, later Zeppelin was so extraordinarily quiet. When it was in flight, it was, you know, it was perfectly quiet. It was extremely still. You know, people would do experiments about putting, you know, a glass of water on a table and you wouldn't see any ripples or you see a, the merest ripple. Whereas opposed on, you know, on, an, on airlines, I mean, like things were always flying around all over the place. OK, let's get to the good stuff. What was it like to travel on one of these things? Well, let's start with size. I'm going to focus on the Hindenburg, which was bigger than the Graf, but traveling aboard the Graf would have been similar to what I'm about to describe. The Hindenburg carried somewhere between 50 and 72 passengers and a similar number of crew members. Passengers were assigned private cabins, double occupancy. 
The cabins were sparsely furnished, and they were small. According to one account, the cabin measured five by eight feet. Each one had two bunks, similar to what you see in the sleeper compartment of trains. The cabins also had a small stool and a tiny closet for clothing. There was a fold-down sink with hot and cold running water, but no bathroom. The toilets and showers were one deck below, as was the bar. Well, let's talk about the bar. As I mentioned, the staterooms were kind of plain, mostly for weight. In fact, the walls between them were made of a thin foam, again, to reduce weight. But there was apparently an expectation that passengers wouldn't spend a lot of time in their cabins, choosing instead to gather in the public spaces of the airship, mingling and visiting and enjoying fine food and drink. The bar had a grand piano, although it was made of aluminum to reduce weight. There was art on the walls, flowers on the tables, and lots of seating areas scattered about. Speed was what commanded the premium for the passenger fare because it was not cheap. There was only one class, was first class. It was uh, more expensive than first class on ocean liner travel. And they had to cater to that, you know, rich clientele. So there was white linen tablecloths, china, sumptuous meals, you know, a full wine list. Like you mentioned, there was an aluminum piano at one point um, on the Hindenburg, I believe. You know, there were liveried waiters who were serving you champagne and canapes. You know, it was it was quite nice. But like the Concorde, space was at a premium. So even though the airship itself was huge, the actual cabin area for the first class passengers was pretty tight. You know, that's one thing if you ever flew in the Concorde, people would remark about is, hey, it's great that you could get from New York to England in two and a half hours. But the seating was pretty confined. It was pretty much the same for the Graf Zeppelin and for the Hindenburg. Um, I mean, there were passenger lounges. There was a dining room. uh, There was a bar. You know, there was, uh, you know, open windows. You know, one of the fantastic things is these are low-flying aircraft. They never really exceeded 5,000 feet. They usually flew around 2,500 feet. So you had terrific views because you had windows that faced downward towards the earth. Um, You could open the windows to get fresh air. People said there wasn't much noise or movement. One of the benefits of these airship travel was there was no seasickness. It was a major selling point for the Graf Zeppelin. You know, yes, you could travel on a luxury ocean liner, but it would take more than twice as long and you'd get seasick along the way. Whereas on the Graf Zeppelin, you could get there much faster and and in comfort. So it, it was really quite stylish. You know, the Graf Zeppelin had, you know, wallpaper. The airframe columns were paneled in wood. There was carpeting. You know, it was almost like a uh, a Jules Verne, Captain Nemo type environment. You know, very, very stylish. I think it was the Graf Zeppelin was pretty Edwardian in its in its decorations. But the Hindenburg was very modern, much more Bauhaus. And, and modern and streamlined interior. But I mean, you know, it, it was a fascinating way to travel. And, uh, you know, the people who, who rode these things, you know, basically had, had nothing but compliments about the experience. The food served aboard the Hindenburg was as good as anything served in the finest restaurants of the 1930s. In fact, the chef who was aboard the Hindenburg on its final voyage was from the Ritz in Paris. One traveler noted that the dinner menu included beef broth with marrow dumplings and Rhine salmon a la Graf Zeppelin. 
The airship's kitchen was on the lower deck, and a mechanical dumbwaiter moved meals up to the dining room and dirty dishes back down to the kitchen. All of the heating sources were electric because of the fact that just above their heads was a balloon filled with five million cubic feet of explosive hydrogen. They had six course dinners. They had a, a library and, you know, they had drinks and they had a, they even had a smoking room on the Hindenburg, uh, which was, you know, self insulated. It's actually probably the safest part of the of the airship, technically speaking. And I think there was someone when the Hindenburg blew up, there was someone in the smoking room and he, he did fine because it was so, so well <laughs> insulated from fire that it was fine and you had you know sort of sort of liveried staff and you know it's very all very sort of civilized yes it's true just beyond the bar on the lower deck there was an airlock passengers could pass through the airlock one at a time to enter a small pressurized room which was in fact the smoking lounge when passengers boarded they were required to give up their lighters but the smoking lounge had electric lighters available for use Now, I'm pretty sure the burning ends of those cigarettes and cigars and pipes were, in fact, open flames. (laughs) I mean, the reason the room was pressurized and required entry through an airlock was to hopefully keep the hydrogen out. I'll include some links in the episode resources to pictures of the inside of the passenger area of these airships, but suffice it to say that while necessarily tight, it was a pretty luxurious way to travel. Spacious walkways or promenades on either side of the main cabin had windows that were cantilevered out to allow guests to lean over and look down the side of the airship and down to the ground or the ocean below. And because zeppelins flew fairly low, depending on the prevailing winds, there was plenty to see. Just inward of these wide promenades with the windows, there was a low railing separating the walking area on one side from the dining room. The other side had the same configuration, except that instead of a dining room, there was a lounge and a bar and a separate reading and writing room. The guest cabins were in the very center of the main deck, between the dining room on one side and the lounge and reading room on the other. Now, I should probably clarify something here. Other than the cockpit of the Zeppelin, there was no gondola hanging underneath like you see with the Goodyear blimp. All the passenger spaces were actually inside the Zeppelin itself. In fact, if you look closely at archival photos of the Hindenburg, you'll see the windows of the promenade on either side about a third of the way back from the nose. Now, according to the diary of Clarence Hall, who, with his wife Dorothy, flew on the Hindenburg from Frankfurt, Germany to Lakehurst, New Jersey in August of 1936, passengers were picked up at their hotels by several buses and transported to the airfield where they climbed up a set of stairs to enter the Zeppelin and then be escorted to their cabins. At the top of the stairs, they were relieved of their smoking materials and their cameras. The cameras would be returned once they were out of sight of land, presumably due to some kind of defense-related paranoia on Germany's part. Clarence also notes this in his diary, talking about the bus trip from the hotel to the airfield. We were soon on our way through the beautiful environs of Frankfurt to the airfield. In half an hour, we were passing through a narrow lane formed by the police through the jam of people gathered there. The order and efficiency was to later stand out in sharp contrast with the confusion and utter lack of police control over the mob at Lakehurst. Well, it was New Jersey after all. Once passengers were aboard and had been shown to their cabins, they would then move to the lounge area to socialize. 
Clarence recalls in his diary that their fellow passengers were all well-to-do and included a few famous people, such as Douglas Fairbanks Jr., along with his wife and their little dog, and the famous German boxer Max Schmeling, the former heavyweight champion of the world. So the Zeppelin experience was a very different one from airplanes. Airplanes would get you between cities very quickly, if noisily and uncomfortably and quite dangerously, whereas the Zeppelin, you know, is much more of a placid ride, you see, much more civilized. And then, you know, they had problems. I, I find a I found a like a kind of a customer response survey type report from the Zeppelin company in the the late 30s, where people are you know complaining about you know uh, after eating uh, all this the heavy stewed cabbage, there's not enough uh, ventilators in the bathroom. You know what I mean? And so there were a few complaints about it, and uh, you know the Americans were complaining about German types of blankets they would you know they weren't the right ones for americans so they had to change them you know they were responding to things and some some of it's quite entertaining you know the library was complained about because it was this you know they just had all these boring memoirs by german field marshals whereas on on the big clippers they would have five copies of margaret mitchell's gone with the wind i mean so that was (laughs) there was a bit of sort of german you know sort of seriousness involved with all this that they had to relax a little this kind of travel wasn't for the economically faint of heart a ticket in the mid-1930s cost between $400 and $450, which is somewhere close to $10,000 in today's currency. And while airship travel was faster than traveling by ocean liner, sometimes as many as 10 days faster, depending on the weather, dirigible travel cost three to five times more than the same journey by ocean liner. I mean, clearly people traveled by Zeppelin because they could. Now, just to show you how special these passengers were perceived to be, the Hindenburg experimented with a special feature to make their passengers' journeys that much more convenient. As the Zeppelin approached its destination city, the crew would lower what looked like a big industrial-strength trapeze from the bottom of the airship. An airplane would fly under the blimp, and a hook on the plane would capture the trapeze. The plane would then be hoisted aboard into a lower-deck hangar where the customs officials on the airplane would clear all those precious passengers through customs so that they wouldn't have to be bothered with such paltry things when they landed. It's good to be king. Unfortunately, turbulence made it difficult for the trapeze idea to work safely, so passengers had to go through the customs process upon landing. Oh, the horror. You know, there's every reason to believe that the age of dirigibles could have gone on much longer, except for two factors. The first was a serious concern about safety. These things were filled with hydrogen, and that could be, but wasn't necessarily, a dangerous practice. One of the people, you know, say is, well, that's great, but didn't, didn't the damn thing blow up all the time? And the fact is, is that it's, that's a huge myth based on the Hindenburg and the airships built by other countries, like the British and the American uh, Navy experiments with them. Some of these were unlucky and some of them were just, they just didn't have the German expertise and proficiency with hydrogen. I mean, the Germans regard themselves as masters of hydrogen and also the masters of, of air shipping that nobody could come anywhere near them. So this, this would curdle into kind of a haughtiness, like you can't tell us what to do, we know best. But the fact is, is that if you look at the statistics, I mean, until the Hindenburg in 1937, not a single civilian airship made by the Zeppelin company caused anything more than there was once, I think there was a little, very early on, I think uh, one of them 
took off badly. Someone got a broken leg. I mean, that was literally the only injury, let alone fatality, recorded with a German Zeppelin. You see, whereas in this, this was at a time, remember, when there were no safety regulations in the U.S. regarding aviation. Chicago radio station WLS sent their reporter Herb Morrison along with sound engineer Charles Nelson to Lakehurst to report on the arrival of the Hindenburg in 1937. Here's Morrison narrating the crash of the airship. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, cracked up a little bit. They backed motors of the ship, but just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flames. Get it started. Get it started. It's flying and it's rising. It's rising terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning grass. And all the folks believe that this is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's just and everybody can't hardly breathe and talk and screaming. Lady, I, I, I'm sorry. Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside while I cannot see it. Charlie, that's terrible. I, 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 I Listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost the voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. Thirty-six people died in that disaster, but more than 60 survived. But the Hindenburg wasn't the only dirigible to be lost. In 1930, the British airship R-101 went down, and in 1933 and 1935, the United States lost its twin airborne aircraft carriers, the USS Akron and the USS Macon. Each carried four small fighter planes, and each also perfected and used the trapeze concept, the skyhook, that the Hindenburg tried unsuccessfully to implement. Now, those were all military airships. They weren't intended for commercial passengers. If you look into how how it was reported and covered at the time, one of the biggest influences was that, first, there were quite a few news reporters present because it was a big event when, you know, an airship came to town. There were famous people aboard and, you know, it was kind of, you know, it was like society guys. It was just always a big event. It was covered by news stations and newspapers. And they would say, you know, they, the Hindenburg has arrived in town kind of thing. They obviously had cameras for the newsreels, which is how most people kind of got their news that and newspapers. So this was a disaster. And I believe it, it was the first time that a real disaster, like something like this, of, of a huge, colossal 900-foot object, the largest flying machines ever invented, you know, sets on fire in this spectacular display of, uh, you know, right in front of you, a couple of hundred yards away. It was the first time that something had been caught live on film and had been reported live, you know, before, you know, an airship for the U.S. Navy had gone down in a storm, but it had been like way off the coast. Nobody had seen it. You could read about it. And but you, it, unless you actually see it. And then, of course, it's rushed off to newsreels around the country within a day. And it's reported in New York and so it's the New York Times. This gets seared into the imagination. But what I what I do uncover is, you know, we see it in our, our mind's eye almost like the footage of the, the Hindenburg going up in flames. And you hear, I told the humanity, 
you know, the, the, the Hindenburg, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible. People have this idea that he was commenting on that film. But what happened was he was a radio guy who had actually just flown in that morning as a kind of a, he was like a local news reporter for some like agricultural station in Chicago. And he kind of like won a, won a kind of a lottery in a way to go cover the Hindenburg in New York City. What happened was, so he was reporting separately. He didn't have a camera with him. What they did, it was, I think it was after the war, someone mixed the footage with his voice, you see. At the time, audiences didn't, didn't hear it. They read about it and they heard it once on the news at the time. So it's, it's in some ways that the explosion of the Hindenburg is actually a kind of a post-war invention. Most people after the Hindenburg explosion were saying, yeah, well, I hope the Germans build another one. It's great. We'd love to have Hindenburg II come and visit New York. So there wasn't, there wasn't this sort of, you know, all of a sudden the Hindenburg goes up and everyone goes, well, that's it. You know, <laughs> no more airships. For people who live in the San Francisco Bay Area who have seen those immense hangars at Moffett Field down in the South Bay, that's where the Akron and Macon were often hangered. Now, people often wonder whether travel by Zeppelin might ever become a thing again. Here's John Gahagan. Every decade, there's uh, there's a series of articles about the airship renaissance. And, and in the last 20 years, there have been a number of prototypes that have been built on various types of airships. The Zeppelin company, NT Zeppelin, is still around. It's a it's a version of the original Zeppelin, Lifschiffbau Zeppelin, which was Count von Zeppelin's company, which built the Graf Zeppelin. And they're they're still building Zeppelins. Uh, they're building semi-rigids today. They don't build big rigids. And in, in fact, the Goodyear blimp today is actually a semi-rigid built by Zeppelin NT. In spite of numerous disasters, including the loss of the Hindenburg, Passengers still clamored for tickets from Germany to the U.S. or to South America aboard the Hindenburg's older sibling, the Graf Zeppelin. But it wasn't enough. After 590 flights, 144 of those over the ocean, for a total of more than a million air miles, the Graf Zeppelin was decommissioned in 1937. And the Zeppelin Corporation, arguably the world's oldest passenger airline, got out of the passenger business in 1945. What really did them in was the politics of it all, you know, and that was the rise of, you know, the Hitler and the imposition of Hitler. And that's what that was what got the Zeppelins, which is a pity. The tragedy was, is that Eckner himself was fiercely anti-Nazi. And so he did his best to de-Nazify the Zeppelin company as best he could, which is part of the tragedy, which is what I talk about. Um, but he couldn't get away from it. I mean, no matter what he did to try and you know, the whole thing about, you know, he tries to dig himself out, but the Nazis just keep dragging him back in. That was what really got him in the end. So it's a great tragedy at the heart of, of the table. It wasn't just about, oh, this airship blew up. What kind of idiot would find an airship that would blow up? You know, it didn't happen like that. If you went on an airship, you could be pretty much guaranteed of a very extremely safe and uh, very stable and, and enjoyable flight. But dirigibles may be down, but they're not out. Back in August, I was invited to go to Moffett Field in Mountain View, California, which is the original home for the USS Macon and the Navy's West Coast Airship Program. And there in Hangar 2, uh, Sergey Brin, who is the co-founder of Google, has built a prototype of a big rigid. It's about 400 feet long. It's made of Kevlar and carbon fiber, you know, modern technologies. And it's about half as big as the USS Macon. You know, it's basically a prototype because last year he uh, purchased 
the old Goodyear Zeppelin Air Dock in Akron, Ohio, which is where the Akron and the Macon were built. And he intends to build a full-scale prototype of about 800 feet long or similar to the uh, Hindenburg and the Graf Zeppelin in, in size. And, you know, the thing about Mr. Brin is he's a lot like uh, Jeff Bezos or uh, Elon Musk is that, you know, he is deep pockets so he can afford to build these prototypes and not so much worry about what is the economic model that's going to sustain them. I hope he succeeds, you know, because there's something very romantic about the idea of a big Richard coming back. But so far, the case for big ridges, there's not been a strong economic basis to support them. You know, of the six to 12 projects over the last 20 years, none of them have gained any traction. So I would say the odds are, are stacked against them, but I wish them success. The second factor that drove a stake through the heart of long-distance dirigible travel was the growing dominance of the fixed-wing aircraft in modern aviation. As planes got safer and more cost-effective, they began to replace dirigibles as a better solution for fast, long-distance travel and for moving cargo. But come on, when I think about flying to Europe or Africa or Asia or some of these other long-distance trips I've had to make during my career, I have to agree with John Gahagan and Alex Rose. When I think about what it must have been like to walk along the dirigibles promenade deck, crowded though it might have been, stop off at the bar for a cocktail before sitting down next to the piano player, and then washing up in my private cabin before a nice sit-down dinner of beef wellington with my fellow passengers, that 777 or 747 kind of loses its appeal. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's me. John Gahagan and Alexander Rose, thank you for sharing your knowledge with me. Folks, I've put references to their works in the show notes. Please also listen to the other episodes I've done with each of them about their careers as successful writers and great storytellers. Meanwhile, if you need me, I'll be in my cabin. I will join you for cocktails in the bar after I freshen up. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, and I just want to take a few additional seconds to thank you for the gift of your time. I started this program because I believe that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that the only thing that ties the episodes together is that each one covers a story that deserves to be told, and that each story is something that you should be curious about. I hope you enjoyed the journey we covered in this program, and if you did, please take a couple of minutes to write a brief review wherever you get your podcasts. I cannot tell you how much it means and how valuable it is to have those reviews. From my heart, thank you, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.